I mean, beer has always fought that. You know, they call it the beer gut. They don't call it a wine gut or a seltzer gut, do they? And welcome to episode 441 of Bruise News Week. My name is Bruise News Editor Matt Kirkegaard. Actually, my name is Matt Kirkegaard and I am Bruise News Editor. And with me is Steve Brockman. No Ian, no Sabrina, just Steve and I. Welcome back, Steve. G'day, Matt. How are you? Flying solo today. Are we like it? Well, not really solo. Both of us. There's two well, of us Well, not solo. Here. It's a co-pilot. Yes, there we go. That's the term I was looking for. We, we, we don't have a flight engineer. No. See if we can <laughs> land it. But welcome back. Thank you very much. How have you been? How was your trip to Vietnam? It was good. I'm still I'm still processing a lot, and I've got a bit more content. Um, and I should say thank you to HPA, uh, who you know again very generously, you know, like to see these things covered um, and made it possible for me to get there. And again, didn't ask for us to cover them at all. It's just covering the industry and what's over there. Um, but uh, it, it was really really interesting because uh, I think the economy is tough across Asia as well um, post COVID. And I picked that up, and it's interesting that we're here. Um, craft beer was growing because it was fashionable, um, you know, with a huge middle class. Um, in across Asia, I kept hearing that it's the growing middle class, it's the rise of the middle class across Asia that is making craft beer possible because it's an expensive thing. So when you have an economic, the, the market doesn't grow as well when the economy is a little bit down. And, you know, it's a whole, it's a very, very interesting market that we don't have here. So, but also the, the models are very, very different. I hosted a panel on, you know, what can Asia learn from the, the, the advanced markets in terms of the, the, the markets that are a little bit older. And, I had three uh, Asian brewers um, talking about it, or three brewers from Asia, I should say. Um, they weren't; they, some of them were expats. But it was really interesting to hear much how much they talked about we're making the beers that are relevant to us, which I think is a mistake that in a lot of ways Australia made to some extent. Where when craft beer took off, we just said, "Well, this is big in America; we're going to make the same things here." I love double IPAs forgetting, you know, not looking at the very different regulatory environment, the very different tax environment, the very different culture um, that exists as well. I mean, Americans have that big, loud culture. Um, And it sounds like the Asian market is um, taking that on board much more and looking, you know, realizing that they need to have um, flavors that appeal to their home audiences. Um, They're developing it To, to to the extent that, Beer judging is quite interesting because, you know, again, you can call it cultural imperialism, I guess, but, you know, most countries use the BJCP or the, you know, um, Brewers Association style guidelines um, for for beer styles. But when you're brewing an IPA at 5%, that's a little bit sweeter and less bitter for your local audience. If you're entering your IPA and it's being judged by brewers from around the world who are using the beer style guidelines, you don't really fit into guidelines. So they're, they're, that's something that they're working through. So like, there was all of this really, really interesting stuff um, that you know says that there's a very, very vibrant market over there. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I'm looking forward to reading your uh, your articles coming up. And how about you? What have you been up to? What's going on in South Australia? Is there a quick uh, South Australia report you can give us? Yeah, so here in South Australia, everything's going pretty well. Uh, starting to get into, obviously, the warmer weather um, after a pretty harsh winter here in South Australia. And... Uh, yeah, everyone's gearing up for summer. So uh, here at Brightstar, we're 
just about to start packaging for the first time, which is keeping me pretty busy. So, um, yeah, strength to strength, I'd say. It, it, it's interesting you talk about because I've, I've heard a lot from brewers that over the last year or two, particularly with the La Nina, the colder, um, wetter summers, it's had a big impact is, 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 is the thinking that I've been hearing. And, you know, there's almost um, rejoicing that they're predicting a, you know, El Nino, the long, hot, uh, dry summers um, for, for, for beer drinking, which sounds a little bit, I don't know, it's, it's I appreciate it from a business sense, but from a climate sense. But um, is that what you're hearing and seeing? Is that, you know, people are hoping that we do have a, a hot summer to bring beer drinkers out um, thirsty? Yeah, I think um, if you look at kind of the last summer that we definitely had here in South Australia, it was probably unseasonable rain. It's something that I keep an eyeball on because I've um, got a little farm of my own. Um and probably, yeah, we didn't get that quite hot a summer as we uh, probably would have expected. So I feel like if you're a brewery that's producing um, large volume or selling into like Dan's and Coles and all of that stuff, um, you definitely, yeah, you definitely want um, kind of the weather to be more conducive to beer drinking. It's a bit of a weird one here in South Australia, though, because we're so focused on stouts and dark beers. Um, it doesn't really matter if it rains. It just means all the stout drinkers rejoice and get to drink a get to drink a stout during unseasonably cold weather well it feels more appropriate if you go out um you know it feels more appropriate if, to, to drink stouts if you go out but uh you need to get people out which is always the challenge yeah and that i think that's what we're seeing here um uh you know everything in south australia is starting to gear back up to festival season so um i mean even this weekend we start to see harvest rock which you know, the second uh, day of that last year was very, very much rainy, 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 rainy day. It almost rained out. Um, so it's predicted to be good weather, and hopefully that means good beer drinking weather. So looking forward to it. Let's uh, let, let's hope. You know, again, it's a uh, if one thing the, if there's one thing the industry needs, it it's a uh, a break. <laughs> you know, <laughs> getting people out. So uh, anyway. News of the week, reinvent and diversify, says U.S. Brewers Association Chair. Um, and I'm going to read a little bit of this one out, as it, it, and there's a, a bit more in the, um, in, in the article. So as always, there'll be links in the show notes. But tap rooms need to continually reinvent themselves, and brewers need to consider diversifying their portfolios, according to U.S. Brewers Association Board Chair Garrett Marrero. Delivering the opening address at the recent BrewAsia conference in Saigon, Marrero, who is also the CEO and co-founder of Craft Ohana, comprising Maui Brewing and Modern Times Breweries, which they acquired last year, discussed some of the challenges that US brewers were facing and how they may be relevant to the Asian region. He noted that after years of unprecedented openings, the graph lines tracing brewery openings and closings were coming together, saying that this is a sign of a maturing market. In most industries, when you see a relative equilibrium, openings and closings, after some of the historical double and triple digit growth rates breweries have had, it's just slowing down. That's all it is, slowing down and maturing of the beer market. There is nothing to be afraid of. He said that the success of more recently opened tap rooms showed the need to examine and potentially reinvent regardless of business model. Um, And that refers to data that we reported on back after CBC that I think Tap rooms are showing 7% growth overall, but I think from memory that's 20% for breweries that are, have opened in the last few years and lower than 7% uh, 
um, for breweries that are older than that. So he um, he said that the success of more recently open breweries uh, showed the need to re-examine and potentially reinvent regardless of business model. This is a continual, this is not something you're going to do one time and then say every 10 years, I've got to look at my model. Uh, he also noted the success of Seltzer to his business, uh, noting it benefited from the COVID lockdowns. The vast majority of Hawaiians stopped drinking beer because after a month of just uh, sitting at home drinking beer, you tend to put on a little bit of weight. So we saw our seltzer just skyrocket. Our seltzer is 5%, 100 calories, no sugar, um, he said in a very good ad. Um, and I threw that in there because I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that. But uh, what, what did you make of all of that, Steve? Yeah, I thought it was a uh, pretty astute uh, uh, observations there from Garrett. Um I did reading into your article too because I read most of that article. I think the tap room's still growing at about seven percent. Um, like you say, I think maybe those newer tap rooms are definitely getting a bulk of that growth, um, and it's easy to come off a small base. Um, but maybe some of the more established tap rooms. But for me, I think when we talk about diversification, I think it's not just in your product lineup. Um, I think it's also about your experience that you may offer at your tap room um, or brewery. Um, Gone are the days where you can get away with opening. Well, a I, and I think the point that he was making is that, yes, yeah, so, so I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I, You're I, right. I think the point that he was making was that, you know, if you go back 10 years or 15 years, the first craft breweries were very much bootstrap operations, you know, often by, you know, home brewers or people wanting to have a crack. They tended to find, you know, cheap uh, warehouse style venues. Um, because uh, you know that that's what um, they could afford, and also what made it possible for them. And fortunately, at that time, people were willing to travel for the novelty of going and sitting in a, you know, warehouse-style brewery. Um, I think after ten years and several hundred breweries, people want a little bit more comfort. They want a little bit more facility, and you know, it, it's not just a place that makes its own beer that people are going to. It's a more rounded local hospitality option. Yeah, and I think you're starting to see that a little bit, maybe with some of the newer openings, a lot more money is being spent in that taproom experience, um, which I think is a good thing. I think we need to be good there. As far as the diversity in in product lineup, I think that's true to an extent. I think in that smaller scale of things, yes. I was listening to uh, the Brewbound podcast this week, actually, um, and they were talking... I had a, I think it was the Beer Institute in the US had a talk. Ah, this is a great podcast, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's a great podcast. Anyway, um, they were talking at a Beer Institute um, talk and then the CEO of Whole Foods was there and basically was arguing to some of the larger production facilities that they're full up on all of the alternate beer category uh, lines. So they're full up on seltzer. They were were not going to take any more seltzer on. Everyone stopped making seltzer because they're they're full. so I think I think where you're going to see that diversity in product growth is maybe at the smaller end of the scale, where you're you're possibly appealing to more people and making sure you're not losing customers because you know their partner or their friends drink something alternative. Um, so I think that's pretty sage advice. A hundred percent, yeah. Oh, well, you know, like that's but that's what he was talking about brewing it. He was talking about diversifying business models as well, and it, obviously it's at scale. And it, it's something that we talked about on the podcast recently about 
in response to a question where you go in and craft breweries always said, well, our product is better. You know, we craft it. We only use the finest ingredients. You know, we slave and our sweat over, over what we make to give you the finest experience. And, you know, God, I mean, this is how long I've been rattling on about this. You know, I remember talking to Pete Mitchum years ago about, and yet they go in and just ferment some Chinese apple concentrate so they've got a, a, a cider option and don't give a shit about the craft, which to me was always inconsistent. And, you know, one thing that he did say is, how can we expect our consumers to make a different choice than we ourselves make? And, he's, and, and that's where I 100% agree with him. The thing, and again, um, it's, I mean, it, it's really a hard one because it depends on what you want your business to be. Um, and I always compare what we're seeing now towards what the rhetoric was when we were debating what is craft beer and the Brewers Association was posting the, you know, um, I am a craft brewer videos with Greg Cook and Sam Calagione and all these brewers standing very solemnly saying I'm a craft brewer and defend beer and all of that sort of stuff when, you know, the way forward was to make beer and make it better than was going on before. And now suddenly you've got the, you know, the chair of that same association going and I saw him speak just as they were launching their um, seltzer in 2019 uh, when I was over there for the GABF and he, he opened his talk by sort of saying I got into this business because I wanted to make cool shit you know <laughs> and you know, as if to say it doesn't matter what you make and that's a fundamental difference for the chair of the association that is supposedly defending brewers um, and you know, it's that's not a bad thing, but I did catch up with uh, Garrett in the US at CBC, and then also in he was in in uh, Saigon, and he's very good at avoiding direct questions on on the topic. It's always ah interesting question. How about I answer it? Look over there, and uh, you know, it, it, it's it's a huge conversation that the industry has to have. The one thing that I found, you know, so pragmatics aside, you know, the narrative has to keep up with, the changing narrative has to keep up with the changing realities, if, if that's the case. The one thing that really offended me um, was when you've got the chair of the Brewers Association actually stating people started drinking it because beer makes you fat. And my seltzer is, you know, 100 calories. Um, and I, I straight away, I, you know, went looking at um, Great Northern, which is the biggest selling beer in Australia. Um, and I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think it was about 35 calories per 100 mils. So, you know, it's about 115, 120 um, calories for a 330 mil bottle. So it's... It, it, it's dishonest to suggest that if you're putting on weight because you're drinking, it's because of what you're drinking. There is no such thing as an alcoholic beer that doesn't make you fat. It's just a nonsense. And when you've got the chair of the Brewers Association confirming, you know, openly confirming some of those negative stereotypes about beer, then you're actually not defending beer. You know, it, it, it's it's pandering to misconceptions and stereotypes. And, and maybe, like, if you're talking about an IPA, Sure, the comparison is different, but not all beer makes you fat. And to just to say this is a you know it's an obvious choice for people that don't want to get fat. I've actually found that really disingenuous for someone who's meant to be supporting craft brewers. 
Yeah, I mean, beer has always fought that. You know, they call it the beer gut. They don't call it a wine gut or a seltzer gut, do they? Um, so beer has always had that thing to fight against. Um, it's somehow, you know, always linked to being unhealthy. But, uh, you know, with anything alcohol, moderation is always the key. It is disappointing to see someone that is supposed to be in charge of championing beer just ever so slightly chopping down the the whole category of beer if only to get a cheeky add in for his own seltzer that's a bit disappointing as from a brewer's perspective it's a much more diplomatic way of uh, <laughs> of saying it <sighs> maybe this is why i don't get invi- invited to nice places i'm always going to be diplomatic you know this I know, I know. This is, but you're still saying the same thing. So, and, and particularly in light of some of the conversations we've had about how do we build brand beer, and you know, with, with a new generation of drinkers seeing beer as all of those negative things, um, oh yeah, it, it, it just really rubbed me up the wrong way. Yeah, the open question for me is like, when is the last time we had a good news story about beer come out? Really, like, here are the benefits of beer. We we don't really do this. And any yeah. any way, shape, or form, well, and it's up to the beer industry to get together and but start that's doing that. You're not allowed under um, uh, um, what is it? Uh, ABAC. You're not allowed to say beer has any health benefits. You know, has any positive. So we're actually hamstrung from making positive claims about beer as brewers because it looks like an, an ad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know you always talk about. You know, beer and people getting together is always a social occasion and that can only be good for society. Um, that social connection you have with all forms of alcohol, that's what helps grease the wheels of social interaction sometimes. So, I don't know. I, I Yeah, I think together is Beer Australia, uh, when that gets, starts to come together and starts rolling, I think that's one of the things that, you know, um, we really need to address, um, changing that perception of negativity that surrounds beer at the moment. I might park, I was going to just, I don't know about you, I've got a little notebook that every now and then I just read something and it sets me off writing 300 words that I probably will never publish, but it's just a, you know, a, a bit of a rant, a, a rant that I can remember. Um, and we might come to that because we do talk about the wine industry fires back against the World Health Organization, but we might just uh, complete the news before we do. Um, okay. Uh, actually, I'll, I will say um, just on that, uh, I, I thought it was very interesting, the quote about constant reinvention, because on top of all of the other things that you need to pay for when you're working a brewery, the cost of reinventing, um, you know, it doesn't come free. And whether it's just zhuzhing up the, 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 the tap room or reinvigorating your menu or all of these things that you need to constantly be doing, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's a really tough uh, tough ask. But there was also an article that Phil's, uh, Phil Sharp um, from Hiker Brewing in Brisbane posted to the Radio Brews News Facebook group along the same lines, can small breweries save craft beer? Industry data suggests yes. Um, and it was talking about similar data also from the Brewers Association saying that, you know, what a bright spark um, the tap rooms and uh, brew pubs are, um, which I thought, again, some good news about beer. But again, and I, I, I just feel like I'm being so, I'm so negative. But having seen the Brewers Association, you know, at 4,000, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 breweries always come out and say, um, you know, no, there aren't too many breweries. Everyone keeps saying there are too many breweries. Everyone's saying there are too many breweries. 
And they just kept cheering it on. And then suddenly the story coming out of, oh, no, it's we're just stabilizing. You know, this is normal. Meanwhile, breweries are closing. Some of them are good breweries that are closing. It's not just bad breweries that are closing and people are getting hurt. You know, it's sometimes I think I think we forget when a brewery closes that it's not just someone's hopes and dreams that go. Quite often it's houses and, you know, on more than one occasion that I'm aware of, marriages. And I don't think it's good enough for the uh, Brewers Association to to go to, to just go, well, here is a bright spot without also cautioning that that doesn't mean that everybody should be running into the same space because that's what we've already seen. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I can see like, you know, I mean, to go back to what Garrett was saying, you were saying a maturity of the market where openings are starting to equal closings. Um and I'd say across the board in most industries, you'd see openings equal closings if they were mature. But it's, I think anyone that's about to start a brewery has to go in fully eyes open. Um, and this this article that even Phil just linked um, is a perfect example of it. I think if you're going to build, don't plan your whole business around getting ranged in Dan's or you know getting stocked in every ALH pub. Your plan should be how do <laughs> we'll I service? Yeah, how do I service my local community, local immediate community, um, and then how do I maximise everything under my control rather than to leave it in someone else's hands? On that, I'm going to tease next week's. That they, hopefully, if I've got time to write it, there'll be a story coming out tomorrow, um, and then next week's podcast, Bureau's of Conversation. Really, really, really interesting chat with a small regional brewer um, who's had some interesting news um, and I ask him very directly about um, you know what size do you have to be to actually have a viable job that you can enjoy and step away from to recharge you know so you're not constantly there doing everything um, and it was a really really interesting chat um, so yeah I, I won't say too much because I'd, I'd, I'd like to get the story out um, because it's quite there's, there's quite a bit to it Uh, Moving on, revenue growth for Coles Liquor, but craft is down. Coles' first quarter results have shown continued, if modest, growth for the company. Announcing its first quarter results to the ASX, the company revealed liquor sales of $851 million, an increase of 1.8% over the previous corresponding period. That's the first quarter last year. Um, I'm only saying that because I always have to check what these things mean. People may may not be, uh, may, may be like me. Uh, not savvy. Uh, the company said that it's an increased evidence of co- cost of living pressures impacting consumer behavior, evidenced in the beer category by customers shifting back to mainstream and international brands away from craft beer. Very concerning for craft uh, brewers. The ready to drink category, which we keep an eye on, grew strongly with Coles saying consumers were shifting from full bottle spirits to more affordable ready-made drinks. Uh Concerningly for small producers, and that's my uh, observation, the company's exclusive liquor brands, its private label business that directly competes with its suppliers, drawing criticism at a parliamentary inquiry earlier this year, added 150 new lines to the portfolio. The company reported it had added 200 lines in the first half results last year. Our exclusive liquor brand's portfolio continues to resonate with consumers with revenue growth outperforming the broader liquor division and more than 150 new lines added to the portfolio, the announcement said. Uh, Exclusive uh, revenue grew by 2.8% for the quarter compared to the prior corresponding period with penetration increasing to 22.1% 
of sales revenue. So that's almost one in four dollars that they make comes from something that they make, not something that they buy. The company also reported strong growth. Well, sorry, they don't make it. They do buy it, but just uh, in e-commerce up 32.2% to 54 million. Uh, the company said second quarter revenue growth was broadly in line with first quarter. Um, so I don't see a lot of good news in that for craft brewers. Um, you know, a lot of craft brewers are saying that their sales are down. Um, and yet, for some reason, Coles is seeing that its own brands are going from strength to strength. I think the last time I was on the podcast, we were literally talking about exactly the same thing, in which we were saying that, you know, um, shelf space is limited. And when we, you know, in Australia, we're a duopoly on most of our things. You know, that's not just liquor. It's also fuel stations, shopping centers. The list goes on. Um, when you have a duopoly and you're relying on two very major channels, they can pretty much control your market access pretty easily. Um and like we've seen, you know, they've added 150 new lines to their portfolio, which means their own product, which they make a better margin on, will start to squeeze us out. So um, if anything, um, probably the lesson here is looking at their e-commerce results where it's growing. Um, again, and I've said on this podcast previously, if you're a brewery in Australia and you don't have an e-commerce site or an ability to buy beer off your website, put it in. Um, it's clear that people and consumers are starting to buy beer online um, and it's an easy easy way for you to increase your access to market. So um, if you are an IBA member, I know there's a deal with Sendal as well. So definitely check that out. Actually, on that, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read the ad for our mailbag now, but I'll do the mailbag later because our mailbag is brought to you by Beer Fans, our mailbag when we get to it. Um, and... Beer Fans has actually started a direct-to-consumer, you know, not only will they sell your merch for you online, uh, they will actually sell your beers for you online. I was talking to Joe about this actually at uh, uh, BrewCon, um, talking to him about, you know, Aussie beer t-shirt day, um, you know, some sort of promotion like that. And then he's like, oh yeah, we've got the ability now to sell oh, like beer as well. like music t-shirt day. Yeah, so like I was like, what about beer t-shirt day? And he and he said that there's something in the works possibly, so that we'll have to keep an eye on ball out for that. But he's like, we can also send beer at the same time, and I'm like, hallelujah, this is amazing. So tell me more, tell me more. Uh, and this, so yeah, so if you can't, you know, and it's a lot of work for often times poor uh, breweries, but uh, our good fans at beer fans create fans for your brand, and they can start selling your merch as well as your beer. Um, Let's sell your stuff online, basically, uh, is, is the ad. If you want to find out more, um, join at beerfans.shop or click on the link in the show notes to start your seven-minute onboarding process. So I'll get that out of the way. Give them a bit of that organic love that rallings get. Give them a bit of the rallings effect. Uh, <laughs> moving on. Capital completes capital raise. Uh, sorry, Convoy completes capital raise and signs first European clients. Keg tracking and pulling provider Convoy has announced it has signed its first European customers as it closes its latest thirteen million dollar capital raise, making the announcement um, as it attended last week's Beer Asia conference, Brew Asia conference in Saigon to generate interest in its keg tracking solutions in Asia. Managing director Adam Trip Smith said that the funds would be used to fuel global expansion. They've just signed a significant uh, Irish brewery. Um, as one of the first to take its catch cellular tracking advice uh, device and apply it to its existing kegs um, and the convoy cloud tracking platform uh, with more being negotiated with more deals being negotiated in the Republic of Ireland, United Kingdom, France, USA, New Zealand, Finland, Sweden, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Spain and Iceland. 
So the only uh, other thing I'd say is that uh, that follows their announcement in February that it was seeking $25 million. Um, they only raised $13 million, but they're seeking to raise an additional 10 And uh, I suspect that indicates how tight capital markets um, have become. Yeah, for sure. I, I can only imagine it's very hard at the moment to raise capital in any kind of significant way. Um, but uh, I think this is actually a good story, a good news story. We're seeing an Aussie company uh, that you know supplies the beer industry here, um, you know, branching out, getting out into Europe. Um, it's a pretty good opportunity over there. And I think uh, by memory, I saw something. I look at a lot of weird stuff on the internet, but I saw something about the keg type breakdowns as far as, you know, different couplers and then also different keg types. And I think they have a large proportion of um, single-use kegs um, over in Europe because of the inter-country trade. Um, so rather than having uh, a keg fleet. So hopefully the keg fleet system works really well over there and we can start to reduce those single-use kegs, those one-way kegs that just tend to theoretically are recyclable but tend to end up in landfill. It feels like it, like it, it, it just to me seems to make sense, keg pooling with, I mean, I, I think the closure of the UK or its you know, departure from uh, Europe um, probably makes it less uh, valuable now. But certainly in Europe, it just seems to make sense to have keg pooling with the concentration that's over there. Um, and as, as Adam said, you know, this is one of the things that fascinates me is the impacts of COVID. And, uh, you know, he, he puts it very well. Brewers, um, you know, it just seemed to work sending kegs out you know there was always loss kegs would just go disappearing um and you would always have to top up a per- percentage of your uh, keg fleet um, for, for for loss but when covid happened and people suddenly realized that kegs weren't moving and they had no idea where they where they were because they weren't just coming back um you know it, it certainly made at least tracking if not pooling um very very logical so yeah um interesting stuff Somebody who's not finding it terribly difficult, or at least uh, partially difficult, to raise some capital is Filter. Um, yesterday, at the time that we recorded this, their uh, equity crowdfund opened with a minimum of half a million and a maximum of 4.5 million, which I think is probably the biggest spread between minimum and maximum that I've seen. So, you know, of course, they with having such a low minimum compared to the maximum. They hit that, and then they were able to start trumpeting. We've already, we're, we've already hit our target. We're overfunding, as if the half million was what they wanted. When I suspect that they need significantly more. Um, but anyway, they've raised one point three six million at the time of recording from six hundred seventy two, six hundred seventy nine investors, um, which I calculate is an average investment of two thousand dollars. So it's certainly not uh, small biscuits. People are putting, you know, I I, I would uh, struggle to put five find two thousand uh, dollars if I needed to uh, uh, in, in in a hurry, let alone two thousand dollars to put towards a brewery that I don't think I'll ever see again. Yeah, well, I mean, in one side, it's good news because it, they'll remain Aussie owned. I know there was a lot of concerns about that in the lead up to the, the virtual raise, um, and they were like, we need to remain Aussie owned, so. If this is a mechanism that they remain Aussie-owned, then power to them. Um, and I thought the way that they've done it has been interesting. I think it's probably been the best discount, you know, the program. It's quite attractive to uh, to get into it. 
Um, but I did find, so within, I've, I've taken a leaf out of your book, Matt, and I sign up for all interest now for everything virtual, um, just so I can have a look <laughs> at the financials and the offer documents. But um, in the offer document, actually, there was a little nugget, um, which basically, I'll read it word for word so I don't get this wrong. So after five years of growth funded entirely by debt, the persistent RBA interest rate increases since May 22 have increased our financing costs significantly, making debt no longer a viable option to fund future growth. And that's a really interesting statement to find in an offer document and probably gives us a real good indication of where a lot of the bigger breweries in Australia are. Um, a lot of them would be under significant loads of debt. Um, a lot of them would be trying to refinance some of that debt. Um, and you've got a brewery here basically claiming that the way that the current economic climate is, is they can't continue to use debt as an option to fund future growth. So um, if you're a smaller brewery or a medium-sized brewery, I would take some advice out of that advice and, and start to pay down your debt and try to grow as much as possible without using debt as your, as your funder. Um, did you read the same offer document I did, Matt? I did. Uh, yes, I, I did. I was uh, I'm just trying to find it on my screen. Um, you know, again, and I should say, um, you know, congratulations. So they, as I said on uh, the Facebook group, clearly they have people um, emotionally invested, um, if not you know, now financially invested um, in, in what they're doing. Um, but the thing that, yeah, one of the things that's stepped out uh, at me was after five years of growth funded entirely by debt, the persistent RBA interest rate increases since May 22, um, make debt no longer a viable option because they do have a lot of debt on their books. Um, and, you know, actually when I saw that and I sort of thought, well, if, if you're looking at alternative forms of debt funding, the equity crowdfunding and then they... One of the statements that always rubs me up the wrong way is they talk about over the last 10 years, the value of breweries um, has gone from $1 million, you know, from brewery sales has gone from $1 million to $500 million, um, you know, quoting, I'm trying to think, of Cricketers Arms, which was a brand without a brewery, um, and comparing that growth with Stone and Wood that was the, you know, the fastest growing craft brewery and the largest craft brewery with 1% of the beer market, as if that shows that brewery valuations are going up. And that's you know, my fundamental criticism about equity crowdfunding is the way that they tease that as a potential lotto, lotto win for uh, people when you know, none of the breweries... Like I, I'm willing to bet a bottle of scotch to any listener that will take me up um, that none of the breweries will... Uh, sorry, I should, no, sorry, I shouldn't say scotch. <laughs> um Better bottle of beer, a very good bottle of beer to any listener that will take me up um, on uh, no, none of the breweries that have equity crowdfunded will ever sell for what they uh, have have raised. Um, but anyway, uh, one of the things I was thinking is that if you are looking for alternative fund forms of debt, uh, something a lot of corporations do that without listing on the stock market is offering bonds where you know you can sort of sell all of your supporters say look loan us $250 keep us going keep us independent the dividend will be on that $250 will be you know you get your 10 15% off um, uh, all of your purchases um, you know for as long as you have that bond with us and your 250 500 is on call um, you know after 
18 months if you want it back. Um, and, you know, that would be a much more honest way of achieving the same result, I think, than equity crowdfunding. But, you know, just go back and listen to my chat with uh, uh, Mark Hubbard and you'll get both sides of that debate. For sure. Brewery bonds. Inter- interesting idea. Don't mind it. I don't mind it at all. That'd be kind Brewery of cool. bond. Remember the old Aussie bond? Or you're probably too young. <laughs> uh, I think the song was no, Bert and Paddy. Um, I've got the idea. Dame Joan and Slim agree. Uh, my dear, quotes Rolf Harris. Uh, and you know, all of the cricketers of the early seventies and eighties. And uh, it was called. And the song just went Aussie bonds, Aussie bonds, Aussie bonds, Aussie bonds. Back in the days of the uh, jingle. So brewery bonds, bring it back. Yeah, politely point out. Yes, I am too young for that that ad. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I hear that over and over these days. Something that our listeners hear over and over these days is that beer can labels are regarded as the new mini billboard of the brewing industry. They say a lot as an advertisement you can hold in your hand. The label is a genuine conversation starter. The label is also providing a new voice to the designers and artists with a very public canvas to present some terrific artworks and some tongue-in-cheek quips. Just brilliant. Seriously, though, to get all the specs right so on your so your bottle or can looks its best at all times, call the guys at Rallings Label Stickers and Packaging on. Now, Steve, what number is did you call? Because I believe you've called the number recently. I can't remember the number straight off my head. And to be honest, I think I called Brad directly on his mobile. I won't give that out. If you don't have Brad's number like Steve does, and you can tell us about that in a sec, call 1-300-852-235 or email sales at rallingsprint.com.au to see how they can make your brand sing better than my earlier Aussie Bond singing. But Steve, you've had reason to speak to them. Yeah, yeah. So uh, recently, obviously at Brucon, I uh, was shopping around and looking for some packaging because uh, Bright Star is going to package uh, in December this year. So... Uh, yeah, just had to start to get all the ducks in the row. And yeah, the first, first booth I visited was uh, Rallings because, you know, I hear the ad all the time. So the Rallings effect is in full force. And uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've been having a good chat to Brad uh, over the last couple of weeks. So he's been helping me out with some packaging stuff. So really nice people. Um, definitely, if you're out there and you're looking for some packaging, um, get in touch. Now, I should say I didn't hit uh, Steve up to do that. I never, I hate pimping no. out our guests, but there was something that he raised uh, before yes, we started I, the podcast. So I did raise that. I was like, yes, I've got a rallying story. Yes. <laughs> I, sh- I should have written down the number. Apologies to the rallyings, blokes. That's okay. It's in your show notes. But you have, <laughs> actually, you, you always prepare very well for the show notes. Um, okay, that's our, that's the news of the week from Brews News. Um, we did have, like, let's see, this week we've had a conversation with, uh, Lime Cordial about the new Largo brand and last week when I was away also had a conversation with Mark Hubbard from On Market um, did you catch up with those I know you haven't caught up with On Market yet no I haven't been able to catch up with the On Market one um, but it's something that I'm definitely interested in having a listen to especially um, as far as crowdfunding and all of that goes um, but I did have a listen to the Lime Cordial one um, and it's Interesting. I, I probably listened to it with a different set of ears than most because um, I'm doing some um, carbon neutral or carbon, you know, moving towards carbon zero uh, uh, business planning at the moment through Business SA and 2XE. Um, but basically, um, some of the people that I was doing training with um, had connections with Lime Cordial and were like, have you tried the beer? And I'm like, I don't even know which beer you're talking about. And I'd actually had tried Largo previously, so... Um, it was interesting to hear the story about what it took for 
pinnacle to jump through the hoops and get that uh, climate uh, neutral accreditation. Um, I believe they're climate neutral rather than climate. Uh, car, sorry, carbon neutral rather than the carbon negative. Um, so uh, yeah, yes, it's yes, a lot of hoops yes, to jump through, um, which is very very hard to get. Yes, incredibly hard to get. So um, power to them for living living their ideas and their ideologies. I think it's an interesting combination or partnership, uh, and I think you asked some timely questions in there, Matt. Um, but um, yeah, I think it's a good listen, and if anyone wants to have a listen and about the carbon neutrality bit of it, um, yeah, well worth it. And we, we don't often do sponsored um, podcasts like that, um, but you know, <laughs> got to pay the bills, and we'll ask the you know, ask the questions, and you know, no one's under any illusions um, about why it was there. I'll, I'll be very honest; I'd never heard of Lime Cordial. Um, I had to ask my twenty-two-year-old daughter, um, and they were big when she was at high school. Um, uh, and I listened to some of their music, and it was pretty good. I, I, I actually, yeah, <laughs> more likely to stream their music than. Uh, you know, buy the beer, um, but that's, I, I get sent so much beer anyway. So, uh, but it was, I, I really enjoyed the chat with them. Um, I learned a lot about band riders, for example. Oh, that was a great part of the conversation. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, we had to chop a few bits out because they were talking about brands. It's probably, you know, it's very hard for one brand to talk about another brand. So um, it was a but it was a really, really, uh, yeah, fun chat. Um, and uh, yeah, no, look, I, I enjoyed it. So um, if nothing else, moving on, uh, just some of the stories that have caught my attention this week. And one uh, last week, Sabrina had a like a world class rant about um, health labels on the podcast, um, and I was sort of wishing that I'd uh, been here to join in. But uh, the uh, wine industry, um, a story in the winebusiness.com. Uh, wine industry fires back against the World Health Organization's zero safety. Um, they actually called a conference, the Lifestyle, Diet, Wine and Health Congress held in Toledo, Spain, which brought together some of the world's top experts on wine and health, who spoke before an audience drawn from major European wine bodies and companies. Um, of course, straight away, it's going to be derided um, by anti-alcohol crusaders that of course I would say that they've got a vested interest um, you know point out that the only uh, anti-alcohol uh, money that's being provided is you know being provided to fund research that is against alcohol and looking at the problems alcohol causes um, which is just as biased and it's uh, often funded by people with their own vested interest um, under the name of uh, you know uh, neutral bodies. Um, but I thought that was very interesting because, you know, we've been saying on the podcast for a while that alcohol um, is increasingly coming under scrutiny and the, the industry is doing nothing uh, to help itself. Um, and actually, th th this is, if I can just go on a little bit of a rant, and this is some very raw thoughts that I sc scrolled down when I was reading this. Um, and then I also saw a couple of articles about the RTDs um, and things like Hard Solo. You know, it, my thoughts were it's, it is true that some people will always abuse alcohol and no amount of warning labels or prohibitions will stop these things from happening. People are going to just do it. At the same time, that doesn't absolve alcohol companies um, for, or manufacturers from their responsibility to establish a positive culture around consumption. And that comes from, I think, too often uh, people who make alcohol 
just throw their hands up and say people are always going to abuse it no matter what we do. Um, and part of that positive culture around alcohol is uh, uh, around uh, consumption. Uh, they pander to the worst elements of alcohol consumption and do that defending themselves, saying they were going to do it anyway. The rise of RTDs and now the weaponization of soft drink brands and the promotion of certain alcohol products as if they have some uh, somehow better for you are chief among these ways that the industry is pandering to the worst perceptions. These drinks have no history or culture around them uh, or their consumption. They have no romance uh, to legitimize them and are created to mask the flavor of the alcohol, um, a characteristic that... Rem- uh, that, that, uh, sorry, and that is a characteristic of these easy-to-drink products that reveals their true intention. It's not about fermentation; it's about consumption. Um, and you know, that, again, that, that was just the, the thoughts that I scribbled down because I think, you know, beer is a noble beverage, wine is a noble beverage. They are things you have to adapt to drinking. You know, no one really enjoys their first beer, their first wine, and definitely not their first spirits, which is why I was so interested that Coles even noted that people are moving away from bottled spirits because of the convenience of uh, RTDs. I would actually argue it's also because if you're 22, 23, and you mix yourself a vodka and Coke or a, um, a vodka and orange or a rum and Coke or whatever, you taste that alcohol burn. And when you drink a hard solo, you know, it doesn't taste any different from solid. You don't taste the alcohol. So the inherent moderating um, characteristics of it are removed and it removes all of the romance. No one, you know, sort of, there is no ceremony around drinking them. So anyway, sorry, that, I didn't mean to go off on a huge rant, but it is something that it, it, it's an existential threat for the brewing industry. Um, you know, that they can, they're they lo- even losing their ability to say that they're a beverage of moderation. No, for sure. And that wasn't even a big rant. That was a that was a medium sized soapbox for you, Matt. That article, <laughs> as far as that article goes, um, you know, I I've been you know at the forefront here in South Australia and organising the response to these Fazans, constant you know with the nutritional panels and the energy requirements, and now you know to hear in the Sydney Morning Herald last week as they were discussing on the podcast, you know we might have to do a cancer warning on beer labels, and at some point. You know, enough is going to have to be enough. Um, and yep. I'm not sure where the point is for the industry, but there is generally, there's not a lot of buy-in from the industry and it, it's kind of disheartening maybe for some of the people that are fighting it tooth and nail. Um, at some point, the industry is going to have to stand up for itself and it's, it's it can't just be one or two people doing it. Um, it kind of needs to be a whole industry approach and it's going to have to be you know, the good old-fashioned, every brewery in this country probably has to start talking to their their local state member, their local federal member, about the issues that are making it very hard to run a brewery day-to-day. No one wants to get tied down in the regulations. No one wants to constantly be looking at packaging changes. Um, I'll echo Ian's calls from last week, you know. If we're going to have a pregnancy label warning and also a cancer warning and, you know, if we eventually get a WHO warning... Um, WHO warning uh, then can we not roll this into one generic uh, warning label saying alcohol is a drug and can cause a variety of short and long term health effects see more at this website in which you know 
is funded by the government to which we pay an extraordinary amount of alcohol excise to. Um, on one hand, the government collects a lot of excise from the industry um, and we're most heavily, well, one of the most heavily regulated excise countries in the world. And yet then says, well, alcohol is evil. We need to continue to regulate it on health grounds. Um, surely some of those excise dollars can be put towards education because I don't see a lot of education being done. Anyway, there's my rant. How big was my soapbox? Um, I don't know. No, well, there's not a lot of education, and you know. Ed, but see, Ed, to, to me, Ed, people don't want to be taught. You know, that there's a culture around it. There's a culture around consumption, and you know, the part of that even just comes from the way that it's presented. You know, like even as somebody who only ever talks about moderation and things, you know, whenever I'm on radio, quite often the particularly the AM radio stations will have a sting. You know, with Homer eulogising beer, or you know, some of the you know beer drinking, the boozy beer drinking songs. Um, as, a, as an intro and I cringe and I hate it and I sort of you know, try and say you know at, at least I'd love to have a beer with Duncan says we'll drink in moderation which is a positive message but you know anyway um, yeah I, I, look I agree I, I, but I think the industry needs to look at itself and what it encourages and what it accepts um, because ultimately you know I, and it's a bit of fantasy stuff because if anyone brewery stops um you know what was it when during the 2008 gfc um you know one of the brokers said you know you keep dancing you, you keep dancing while the music's playing because you can't you know anyone who stops uh, loses an advantage so anyway now brings us to the brewery of the week. Thank you to Bluestone Yeast, who can supply pitches of yeast from 1 litre to 100 litres at greater than 2 billion cells per milliliter. Whether you're after a one-off pitch or you're looking for weekly, fortnightly or monthly deliveries of yeast, Bluestone Yeast has you covered. You can reach out to them at info at bluestoneyeast.com.au or call Derek on 03-8518-3172 and talk all things yeast. And that 03 number is local this week. Uh, last week he was with me in Saigon. I got to have a, a bit of time with him, which was great. And uh, he was able to say that my brewery of the week last week, um, which was Found Lab, was a client of his. So he was very chuffed because he'd been speaking to them um, about that. And he's just texted me to say that um, he was he was very pleased to hear uh, Sabrina's praise for... Molly Rose, because he was there recently uh, and had a look around, and he's now booked to go have that exact same experience. So uh, that's very, very exciting. So, uh, Steve, who's your brewery of the week? Uh, so I'm going to give it to a wonderful South Australian brewing company called Suburban, the Suburban Brew. Um, they have uh, taken their original location, so they had a location in Goodwood, which isn't too far away from the showgrounds, um, and then recently, uh, within the last 12 months, have built a new brewery in uh, Glind, um, so just to the north of the city, um, a 20 hectolitre kit. Um, so uh, all of the guys there, uh, guys and girls, are all wonderful people up there um, and do a really good job. And I, I just think their branding is really on point at the moment. Um, the new facility is really nice. Um, it's going to be a very big summer, I predict, for those guys. Um, it's a case of the right brewery, right place, right time. Um, so, no, doing some really great stuff. So I'll give it to the Suburban Brew. That's great to hear. Congratulations. And uh, thank you to Bluestone Yeast for bringing us the Brewery of the Week. Letter of the Week brought to you by uh, Beer Fans uh, that we mentioned earlier. I was about to start reading them, but we mentioned them earlier. So they've had their read, but there's a link in the show notes for uh, Beer Fans. 
Question from Wade Curtis. Genuine question and not having a dig at Bolter or the new product, but can someone with big beer experience explain how copying another very successful product is classed as innovation? And he's quoting a, uh, I think, a LinkedIn post from CEO of Carlton United Breweries, Dana Cialoni, um, talking about the exciting innovation from our great team at Bolter. Thrilled to be unlaunching the Australian Chaveza. Um, and uh, someone reached out to me and asked whether I'd be calling it out. And I linked them to a 2011 um, article that I wrote uh, when Brisbane Bitter was brought back, um, pointing out that it's a case of putting lipstick on a pig. Um, it, but actually not in Bolter's case, because absolutely not in Bolter's case, but uh, innovation um, basically means new. It doesn't mean innovation as in, you know, innovation normally means you've invented something or created something that's new. Um, so it's more a case of, oh, look at my innovative shoes. I just got them yesterday. <laughs> Your thoughts, yes. Steve? Yes, that's that's the technicality. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's a highly innovative product, but um, definitely within Australia, we're seeing that Chavesa is definitely a growing market um so i mean power to bolter for bringing one out and if the ceo of cub thinks that's innovative then power to him he it's new it's new to him maybe not so some other consumers out there but uh, i do see wade's point <laughs> well it's kind of one of those of course he has to say that things i think um but again i think, you so know, too. I, look, I think so. as i said when they brought it out when they brought the beer out um i'm a huge fan um of uh bolter Probably not a beer that I'll be drinking a lot of, um, but I love the fact that they're making beer um, because, at a, you know, going back, at a time when beer is declining everywhere, they're investing in beer. And I think uh, between Scotty and Sterling, um, you know, if you had a captain and full forward of the Australian brewing team, um, I'd be nominating them. And plus that advertising campaign, uh, Beer is for Everyone. I think they've got a couple of credits in the bank they can sl- well, slip that's up Sterling, yeah. So that's a bit of captaincy yeah. there and uh, Scotty playing exactly. full forward. I'd, mate, I'd, I'd have you out on the wing, I have to say, Steve Brockman, a, a, a speedy little wingman. Uh, I, I don't think I'm a speedy or a wingman in any way, shape or form, but uh, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it for the team. <laughs> <laughs> um, anything else from you this week, Steve? No, that's pretty much it. I'm just uh, yeah, looking forward to getting through the busy Christmas rush and um, anyone that's out there and... Uh, starting to see the weather getting better. Uh, definitely plan yourself and book yourself into your local craft brewery and try and support them, especially over Christmas breaks. Uh, so if you need to find that hard-to-get present, I'm telling you, your local brewery has it in one shape or form or the other. So definitely go down to support. Exactly. Or beer fans, if you want a little bit of uh, merch. Oh, exactly right. Go go go, go to uh, go to beer fans and get your T-shirt and your beer at the same time. Spectacular. So that brings us to the end of another show. If you'd like to post a question or a voicemail, ask us a question or make us make a comment, tell me where I'm wrong, uh, which seems to be the general consensus. <laughs> um, play uh, uh, for us to play on the upcoming podcast. You can leave a 90 second message for us uh, via the link in the show notes. If you look down to wherever you're listening to this now, you'll see it and uh, you can record it from your phone. Otherwise, you can email us or join the Radio Brews News Facebook group. Uh, code word says on that wraps up another week of news your hosts have been me matt kirkegaard and steve brockman the show is produced and edited by joe helder we thank cryer malt rallings label stickers and packaging bluestone yeast and beer fans for their support in making this episode possible thanks steve talk to you again soon thanks matt cheers <laughs>